Welcome to John Glenn College of Public Affairs Policy Brief, a series of informed conversations with policymakers and influencers and public sector professionals. My name is Trevor Brown. I'm Dean of the Glenn College and proud to be your host. I'm joined by Lieutenant Colonel Scott Smithson, the head of strategy for U.S. Southcom or Southern Command, one of 11 unified combatant commands in the U.S. Department of Defense. Southcom is responsible for providing contingency planning, operations, and security cooperation for Central and South America, the Caribbean, and their territorial waters, and for the force protection of U.S. military resources at these locations. Thanks for joining today, Scott. How are you doing? Hey, thank you, Trevor. I really appreciate the opportunity uh, to support the conversation today, and I uh, hope everybody who's listening that you and your families are in great health. Well, Scott, I, I know you're you're here at the uh, at the grace of your uh, your time, but uh, I want to make give the uh, the audience an opportunity to hear that these are your views and not necessarily the views of uh, U.S. Southcom and the U.S. military. Is that no, that that's correct. Thank you for that caveat. Good, great. So, Scott, we're going to have a wide-ranging conversation about the the state of national security and the impact of COVID. But just to get this started, you shared a great anecdote with me a little while ago um, about uh, a group of Americans uh, who were potentially going to be impacted by COVID, who were uh, to some degree stranded abroad in Peru. Give us that. Give us that anecdote. Who were they, and where where were they, and how did we get them? Yeah, Trevor. Well, thank you again for uh, the opportunity to speak and for everybody who's uh, listening in. I look forward to a great conversation today. Uh, The the anecdote that I shared uh, with Trevor a few weeks ago, I think is illustrative of the second and third order impacts of COVID that we as a nation and as kind of in a government policy world really have to think about. Um, As many of you will recall, as as the cases of COVID were increasing, multiple countries, not just our own, suspended significant air travel in and out of their own sovereign territories. And what tended to happen was these closures of uh, airports, the the closing of borders, tended to outpace the ability for people who were abroad to include tens of thousands of Americans to get home uh, and to get home uh, quickly. Um, And so one of the things that has been a major focus of the US government, principally the State Department, but with US military support, is repatriating Americans who who basically have been stranded overseas. Um, And the example that I shared was a a semi-professional women's American football team that had been playing um, in Peru and all of a sudden found themselves stranded and had the challenge of of trying to get out. Um, Working these type of things is a very, very intricately detailed process that involves not just the military, but our state departments, our diplomats globally, as well as the host nations of where Americans could be uh, uh, could be stuck, for lack of a better word. Um, the challenge in itself was really compounded by the fact that when most Americans are overseas and they need help, they need to engage embassies. Um, but if those embassies are, are are either oversaturated with tasks or they're dealing with COVID mitigation, it lends itself to a particular challenge. Compounding that was the fact that when countries are allowing military or government entities from other countries in, they're as subject to the quarantine rules and regulations in those countries as they are when they come back to the United States, right? So much as we are taking 
mitigation measures within our own borders to, to flatten the curve and slow the disruption of COVID. Other countries, even those countries that are completely um, our major allies and partners are doing the same. So it makes things that we think to be routine that much more complex. Um, and so it's just a great illustrative example of the things that COVID is asking us to do and think about and, and forcing us to think about um, in a much more deliberate and a little bit of longer time horizon. So you're, a, you're a strategist and a planner, and I want to get into a minute um, how you think about the world. I think that'll be really uh, elucidating for, for folks who, who think about planning for uncertainty. But before we do that, I, I, want, us, I want you to paint the, the sort of security environment for us here um, you, you oversee the strategy planning for the Southern Command, but you're also thinking about the globe writ large. So just start by describing what the security environment looked like from the perspective of the United States, uh, sort of pre-COVID and then now in the midst of where we are. And then we'll start talking about, well, how does one plan, just like the example you just gave, how do you try to position and strategize around all the uncertainties that are present? So start by what is the world, what did it look like uh, in at the end of December, January, and, and what does it look like now from a security perspective? No, thank you. This, this is a good question because I think fundamentally one of the challenges for geopolitical risk analysts, military officials, uh, people in the, in the public sector and in the private sector is this idea of trying to understand what is the nature of the environment and all its dimensions in a, in, a, in, a, in a COVID new normal, right? Or a future post COVID environment. Um, I think if I, could, if I could put it in one sentence, I think COVID is stressing the international system while also amplifying geopolitical competition at the same time. So in many of the different factors and trends of the things that we may have seen before, that, before this became a global pandemic is now just kind of on an accelerated trajectory. Um, and I think if, if I could kind of unpack what I think that means at both the global, regional, and maybe national level on yeah. different time series, I think would be helpful. Let's, let's do it. So start global. Um, yeah. So, I, so I, think, I think globally what you're seeing now, and this is mostly in the developed, developed world, you're more uh, uh, highly integrated and globalized economies and political entities are kind of in a state of strategic triage right now, right? So it's all about mitigating, first and foremost, the health impacts of COVID, and then kind of the successive issues that come from that, from, from an economic uh, perspective, from a governance perspective, as well as a, as a security perspective. And when I talk about security today, while it obviously has a military dimension, I talk about it in a multi-dimensional sect, or, or a multi-dimensional sense, if you will. Um, and so one of the things, so I think what you see in kind of this first, if we want to say the first kind of surge of COVID in the countries that are dealing with it is obviously you have a decrease in economic productivity. Mm -hmm. um, countries are tending to take more of a unilateral versus a multilateral approach in a coordinated sense of dealing with the pandemic. Um, in some, you're seeing a little bit more, you're accelerating the sense of nationalism in populist politics globally, I would say. Um, and then even in some countries, uh, a, a further concentration of authoritarianism, not, not necessarily in all democracies, um, but, but I see that as a trend. And then last but not least, kind of a revisitation of this question of, of the goodness of, uh, of globalization and, and what does that mean? And so I think major countries in the, in the, in the developed kind of global north are dealing with this now. 
But this is just the beginning of a series of, of cascading crises that will ripple effect from the global north and the developed world into the developing world. Let's, let's, let's pause there for a minute. I, I, as you said, you, I'm, you want to unpack this, so I want to unpack it a little bit further. Um, so you, you went through the various sort of dimensions at the, again, the global level, um, and, and you suggested that, that we, these, some of these forces were already in play. It's not as if the switch flipped and then all of a sudden we went from a multilateral world to now unilateral world. Um, but, but talk a little bit more about where were we pre-COVID on some of those dimensions? So obviously economic productivity declines precipitously as a result of, of COVID. And that, and that seems like the life switch example. That, that clearly, governments lock down, um, all of a sudden economic activity, if not ceases, it just becomes a lot more constrained. But what about multilateral versus unilateral? How, how much, and, and globalization more, more broadly, how, how much was that a trend pre-COVID? Um, I, so it, it's interesting. I think COVID, COVID is much like we're looking back to the pandemic of 1918 to kind of divine trends of how the world uh, changed and did not change because of uh, the 1918 flu at the tail end of World War I. In some ways, the, the issues that we're seeing both pre-COVID and, and, and while we're in the COVID environment is what I would argue is a, is a long-term uh, unfraying of the international order that we've had in the last 75 years since the end of World War II. And so even, even going back a few years, there's been an increased questioning of things like uh, you know, liberal, inter, liberal, uh, liberal interventionism globally, um, emphases on, uh, on, on kind of the perpetuation of democratization, um, uh, a, a minimalizing in the role of government and really an embrace of the, of the private sector, an embrace of the, of, uh, of, of the market, if you will, to kind of deliver public goods, okay? So uh, how, how governments rely heavily on this idea of, of optimizing um, public service provision. So I think that, that was there. I think be, before COVID as well, you had a questioning, um, even before the current administration, of how does the United States as a principal leader of a network of alliances and partnerships engage on things like uh, global trade agreements, like um, burden sharing in an alliance or a coalition context. So those questions were, were already there. And I think what COVID has done has, has added to the kind of the cacophony of those questions. Great example, it would, one that I pay a lot of particular attention to is dynamics within Europe as it relates to security issues. Um, our current national strategy and other strategies and even our Southcom strategy emphasizes the crucial role that alliance, alliances and partnerships confer to a, to a Western global stable order that's based on um, the pres preservation of many of the norms that have kind of guided our foreign policy since World War II, um, to say nothing of the fact of how you buy down risk for global war. Mm -hmm. So, um, but there's been kind of a questioning of this, this model and in, I look at a lot of the issues that, that, that challenge Europe, for example. So I would say that uh, COVID is the third major approaching an existential crisis type issue for the European Union you've had in the last 12 years. 
beginning first and foremost with the, with the way that the EU responded to the 2008 financial crisis, to uh, the, the, the inability to come with a consensus response to the massive challenge of war refugees from Syria that challenged the very idea um, of a united Europe in 2014 and 2015, and now significant disparities in different parts of Europe on how best to respond to COVID, but also where, uh, where financial packages will go and who will receive in, in, inside of Europe uh, bailouts, if you will, um, for the inevitable uh, significant debt challenge that all countries, to including our own, will have to, have to face. This matters because as, as we know, and as our students at the, at the Glenn College know, governments have to make tough choices. Any budgetary decision in and of itself is zero sum. And we're kind of back in some ways back to the classic guns, guns or butter. Uh, questions the way that we teach people about economics principally. The challenge that I see is we don't necessarily have that choice. We have to find an or with the guns or butter, but the challenge is how do you do that in a coherent and coordinated way amongst multiple multilateral entities when the very essence of those entities is under threat and under question. This is great. And again, we'll get into the how do you plan in this environment in just a minute, but you you began to lay out, let's talk globally then regionally, and you thank you for un, unpacking for us the understanding of the, the sort of the global north, at least around um, uh, Europe. We don't hear a lot about the Southern Hemisphere um, generally, but certainly not in the midst of this this crisis. A lot of the conversation has been China, obviously, where uh, we believe that the pandemic began. Um, Southeast Asia broadly as it spread throughout, um, and then its impact on Europe and the United States. But we haven't heard a lot about our Southern neighbors, um, and you could talk just about the Southern Hemisphere, but I'd love for you to talk about SOCOM and, and the, the sort of the lens that you look at this. How do you see this playing out in, um, you know, what's the situation right now in the, um, in the Southern Hemisphere and in our backyard, um, and, and how is COVID impacting it? Yeah, no, this is a very good question. Um, I think one of the challenges when we try to think about how COVID is going to impact countries of a different socioeconomic makeup than what we have is that one of the reasons why the United States, Europe, China really felt the impact of COVID so much and so uh, so widespread within their societies is because we're, we're well plugged into the different mechanisms of globalization that allow somebody like you and I to buy a trip to China online for $800, go there and come back in a week, or a family in Europe to be able to travel to the United States, or even businesses, uh, people in the private sector to kind of have that. Not everybody has the, has that kind of access in, in the developing world. Um, and so it's gonna take a little bit more time before we see that exponential growth curve in areas to start to manifest. The challenge that you have that I would argue in some of the developing world and even some of the countries that are, are more robust partners in Latin America, like Colombia, uh, like Brazil, is how resilient will they be in their ability to absorb the challenges and the aspects of things with, within COVID like we have. We've been, we've been somewhat, I would say, fortunate in the fact that, let's say for a military dimension, we have a significant U.S. military. We have a National Guard that is that, that can operate globally, but tends to kind of be the U.S. military's main uh, lever to support issues within our borders. Um, other militaries don't always have that luxury. And much as we've seen that there's there's been unavoidable attrition uh, 
in our first responders, both in, the, in health policy and in military policy. Think about the number of uh, law enforcement officers from the NYPD who yeah. either died or have not been able to do their job uh, because of illness. You're going to see this play out, in a, I think, in a much more acute sense in countries in the developing world and even countries who are, have a very high level of development. Um, is particularly when we consider, and, and, and this will compound other issues as well. Um, I, I believe in a previous conversation, I you know, shared one of the things that the people who study and care about the long-term feasibility of, of many countries of the Eastern Caribbean, uh, many of these countries rely heavily upon tourism as a significant portion of their gross domestic product. Obviously, they're not getting that money right now. Additionally, many countries, uh, the, the, the economic well-being of many countries in Latin America are a function of remittances that are sent from families that work in the United States and then send a portion of their earnings back. All that is being kind of you know, crimped and siphoned off right now. That's then compounded by pre-existing issues. Many aspects of Latin America had um, not a, a great economic performance recently. I know the IMF is, is uh, forecasting a significant downturn up to maybe even seven or 8% of GDP in this year alone. Um, and while countries like the United States and the North, we have the way, we've always bounced back from recessions, even depressions, even you know, epical events like, like World War I and World War II, not all countries have that, those, the ability to do that neatly. Um, and then I think that that gets you to a particular challenge. So we can we can presume we'll we'll see some of the same stresses and strains that we're experiencing here in the United States, but just as you said, amplified and augmented healthcare systems, overrun economies, social fabrics unraveled, um, all of that, and and that that causes concern from a humanitarian standpoint about our responsibility to provide assistance. But but again, and I want to be conscious that I'm narrowing the frame here, knowing that the United States has multiple responsibilities and um, around the globe. But from a security standpoint, how are you beginning to think about the impacts of those kinds of stresses on um, the Southern Hemisphere here near the United States? And the and the potential implications for for our security. How how might we see that? Where where would that come present? So so, I th so so I think there's a lot of different dimensions to this that we have to think about, both from kind of a negative externality impact as well as stresses on institutions. Um, so for example, uh, the crisis in Venezuela. I give you an illustrative example. By the middle of this year, even pre-COVID. Most humanitarian aid and disaster response professionals were, were ex expecting to see that uh, that instability from Venezuela would be the largest driver um, of, of mass migration in Latin America and bigger than even in, than over the wars in the Middle East. This puts significant stresses not only on whatever aspect of the Venezuelan government would be willing to do anything for its citizens, but also on the countries who surround it, who up until now have have done yeoman's work in absorbing these surges of, of refugees and trying to present, at least to offer some levels of public service provision and health. That's going to be even more stressed in that context. And the other thing that we have to think about, too, is that the, the militaries with whom we uh, support and do a tremendous amount of training on um, and helping them build their capacity to deal with security issues, 
they now have on top of the normal things that they all that they would have had to worry about the threat from violent extremism uh the protection against guerrilla movements the challenges of counter narcotics uh the increased role of countries like russia and china in the western hemisphere adding on top of that now those militaries are going to have additionally additional responsibilities to to support covid response but also to have some level of uh, order and discipline um, to prevent the kind of societal breakdown that you're talking. So all that to say the the different uh, resources that that could be at play um, that may have have existed before COVID may not be there. A country may not be able to help the United States or help another country with something in the way that it could have before because it has other liabilities. And, and again, and this isn't an alien problem to just Latin America. I think all governments to include our own, China, Russia, Iran, uh, all countries are kind of dealing with this. How, how, do, you, how do you think about prioritization and, and what are your interests and what are your long-term and short-term um, risks? Let's talk about that a little bit more. Um, so you were describing moments ago how our militaries are in, in a multilateral world um, connected. Um, we we aren't just you know training our own military to go off and engage in conflict around the globe. We're coordinating, communicating, collaborating with other militaries. Sometimes those we wouldn't even put in the friendly category. There there are conversations going on with with various um, other militaries in, in places that are potentially um, are not our friends. Do do you see that? How will COVID strain that? kind of relationship? Where where will we, we see that? Will we just cease to collaborate and communicate because our budgets are restricted yeah. or because we think all countries are going to turn inward in the in the coming months? Well, I think I think one of the things that that we've seen, we being the, the Department of Defense writ large, is even though that there are restrictions on, let's say, travel, uh, you know, the ability to have a high level exercise or for the head, the, the the supreme allied commander of NATO, to fly and meet with uh, the heads of government, the heads of militaries within kind of the NATO construct. Even if COVID is preventing us from doing that, it's allowed the U.S. to find different ways to to kind of to continue to breathe uh, to, to to continue to breathe life and maintain those positive relations and communications. Um, and, and similar to the way that, that, quite frankly, the way that we're doing things right now. So, going on. Um, yes. And, you know, I, I worked for a great uh, general when I was at U.S. Central Command, and we were stepping up the coalition to counter ISIS. One of the reasons why we were able to establish that coalition so quickly was the fact that those relationships with our key allies and partners had always been sustained, even if there wasn't a a, a shooting conflict going on, you had to had to maintain that positive social capital, that professionalism. As, as he would say to me, Scott, this is great because as we know, you can't surge trust. Right. So one of the fundamental aspects of what the United States needs to do and is doing right now, at least within the military dimension, and I believe also diplomatically, is maintaining and kind of net worthing, if you will, the, that existing constellation of allies and partners. I love love that phrase. You can't surge trust. Um, I, I will admit I'm going to use that at some point, um, and I'll I'll do my best to give appropriate um, 
trademark authority to the previous user. Um, that's a that's a great phrase, and and it speaks to so many of the kinds of collaborative efforts that are needed to to both address the immediate crisis, but also uh, prepare and respond for the future. So let, let's use this as a pivot. You're a strategist and a planner. Um, you presumably are always dealing with uncertainties and things that are in flux, but this strikes me as a time right now where it's it's even hard just to draw assumptions because they're so fluid. Talk a little bit about the process that you and your team and, and broader, more broadly, the military go to try and plan for the future when there's so much uncertainty. Walk us through that process. Yeah, no, as, as you said, this is definitely a time with a significant amount of ambiguity. And, it, and when you're in that type of environment, regardless of being a military entity or a business or even a university like Ohio State, you have to have rigor and structure to the way that you think about the current environment and where things could be going. Um, when, when the U.S. military plans or the U.S. military comes up with strategies um, it's, it tends to be a very ordered process, and forgive me if I get into too much doctrine. Uh, everybody can download our doctrine online, but you really, you really start principally with this idea of what are your goals, what are your objectives, um, what are you trying to achieve. Uh, then you kind of shift to what are the things that you don't, what are the things that you need to revisit, what are your assumptions, mm -hmm. and as and as you've said. Um, those assumptions are always ingrained in any organization's strategy. There are certain things that you have to hold constant to be able to pursue the different objectives that you have with the resources that you know you have. Um, and, and you then kind of pivot from there to this, this question of how do we understand the environment? And for strategists like myself and others, understanding the environment is not just single factor analysis. It's not just how do I understand a potential uh, uh, threatening countries military, but how do I understand and analyze the political dimension of things, their economics, what's going on in a societal context, um, in, uh, in an information domain, and even from an infra infrastructural perspective. That then kind of gives you the idea of, 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 of what we kind of call a, a, a running estimate, if you will, a running strategic estimate. Um, and, and kind of once you do that, then you then you get into the time and the space to think about, you know, what, is it time to do a forecast? And, and what is the rigor by which we think about forecasting? And, and, the, and the literature on forecasting runs the span from obviously business forecasting to the type of forecasting that we're talking about uh, today um, to even to even things like sports. I know obviously this week we had we had the NFL draft, right? And, and, and what, is, what is that other than an assumption or a hypothesis on how a high potential future could hold? Um, the, the thing that's valuable about if, if you do forecasting well, you're not trying to get into prediction. What you are instead trying to do is trying to model, or not, not just model, but really identify what are a series of different events or, uh, or different potential outcomes that you can then array kind of up by both probability and risk. Um, many who kind of do this work talk about trying to place what you do in a somewhat cone of, of uncertainty. Um, and, and this kind of gets into the language where people talk about black swans. I heard just yesterday someone wrote that COVID is a gray rhino, right? So something that was, that was, that was known, but we didn't know any, we didn't, uh, we weren't proactive enough um, 
about. But uh, but I can pause there if you want me to get more yeah, into the forecasting. Let's let's use let's use the COVID example in the world you're living in, and we'll, we'll use this to transition into how you're thinking about the future. What what are the key assumptions that you all have right now about the world um, as you think about how we plan for an uncertain future with COVID? You know, having peak one, um, yeah. some projections for a second, third, multiple peaks. Others projecting maybe it goes to zero. Um, what, what kinds of assumptions are you making in, in your unit? Well, I, I think it's important that both the assumptions that, that you visit and the type of time horizon that you look at, you, you, you build a little bit of humility into what you're, what you're considering. Um, because there, there are things that, that we, that we do know from a macro level, um, and even down to a smaller level, obviously, uh, I, I would say, and this is Scott Smithson, I don't think that uh, the United States government in our, in our broader strategic purpose, that the objectives that we seek, so prosperity, um, the continued belief in the idea of democracy, um, an ordered international order that is underpinned by a series of, uh, of international agreements in concert with other countries, I think many of that's there. I'm going to um, step out of the way just so we see the flag as you say these these sort of consummate American goals. Absolutely. Um, and, and it, but also the, the revisiting some of, you know, for example, we we're still trying to understand, I think as a U.S. government, what are the long-term financial implications of COVID? Um, I once heard someone say that budgets are the only true moral documents in a government. They don't mm -hmm. lie. And so they will show you what kind of the prioritization is. And, and so I, I think one of the assumptions that all governments are dealing with right now is thinking that budgets as they were pre-COVID will not probably be the same post-COVID. Yep. Okay. So, so I think that that's, that's another one. I, I think another significant assumption is the one that, um, that you brought up earlier was the idea that, the, that this first kind of wave of COVID is not the only wave that we may see. And even if it is the only wave, that doesn't preclude us from trying to be proactive in hedging in our thinking of thinking about, okay, what would be the implications of those second and third waves? To kind of tie this back into our, our opening comments, it's going to be an interesting interplay between when, when kind of the, the, many of the countries of the West are kind of on the downslope of their first curve, other countries and those who are going to be less resilient will be approaching their first um, and so what, what does that mean um, long-term? Uh, but, but there's other, there's other factors that can go in to help you. Even if you don't, if there are, if there are a lot of things that you have to assume, there are other different bedrock elements in forecasting that can be helpful. So let, let's get now into the forecasting the future. Um, you, you suggested at the, the beginning that, that COVID may be, um, sort of an accelerator of trends that are already in place or, uh, you know, some other, it has some other um, impact. What, how do you, how are you seeing the, the sort of futures forecasting what the, the future may look like? I think that'd be for us. Yeah. So, so it, it's interesting to look at both existing scholarship and uh, a lot of different writings on this. And, and you really have two major competing camps right now. You have the, you know, COVID as, as game changer, and you have the COVID as just accelerator. Um, and, and, and both sides make some persuasive arguments. Um, I, I think one of the things that's great about 
what what we do in the strategic planning community, and and also, and this has a direct tie into obviously the academic world, is the use of both history and theoretical concepts to kind of bound and influence the way that we think about these things going forward. Um, so when when I think about geopolitical game changing, I'm really focused a lot on this idea of are we seeing a significant paradigm shift, a, a reordering of both economics, military, political power in ways that we didn't necessarily see before. A classic example of this would be, what did the world look like in 1945 versus the way it looked in 1939? How did, how did the world look before the Berlin Wall went down? How did the world look after the Berlin Wall went down? Um, and so these are just, just, just two um, examples because bounded within there, you had, you had an international system it was somewhat stable. It didn't mean that there wasn't war. It didn't mean that there weren't um, recessions. It didn't mean that there were flashpoints that, that threatened to undermine the entire uh, stability. I would think about the Cuban Missile Crisis, the war in Vietnam, um, it, countless other examples. But, there, but at the end of the day, there was somewhat of a structure. Um, I don't see that structure fundamentally changing right now. But what I think what many people are starting to maybe argue is that a lot of these pre-existing uh, drivers, so, so a, a, a questioning of the U.S. role and leadership of, of the international system, revanchist behavior of a China or a Russia, um, continued amplification of underlying currents of instability in parts of the Middle East and Latin America, COVID isn't really tamping those things down. Yeah. You know, we, we may have to take a break internally within the United States and our economy and our schooling and our health policy or, or in our approaches to health policy to, to address this issue. But geopolitics did, has not gone on pause. And in many ways, it's actually accelerated. And so over time, I think you'll continue to see limit testing kind of on, on the margins or on the border of what can, what can countries get away with, what can they not. And then once the countries like Russia, the United States, uh, our NATO countries, um, Iran, are kind of over the big first curve, what does that new normal look like? As, as you look towards the, the future and you, you describe the sort of acceleration versus game changer um, sort of scenarios, and, and you're, you're, the story I'm hearing you say is that this is a shock to the system, but it, it hasn't fundamentally in your mind yet altered the trajectory of some things that were already in place, which, which leads me to believe that the viewpoint is that there's some inertia in that, that there's some, some forces that are at play right now that are you know, gonna be altered, but not fundamentally disrupted if we look back you know, with, the, with the benefit of history. But presumably there are steps that we will take as a nation in the next six months, year, two years, five years, that could alter the likelihood of whatever the future might look like. As you begin to, to think about that, you know, the, those processes that, that you laid out at the beginning, continuing, what are the major things that we could be doing in the United States to influence the trajectory of the security environment and you know the, the, the sort of global architecture writ large? Yes, so so um, so I think there's a lot of different things that, that can be done, and, and I will start at kind of a global level and bring it even down to the individual, um, if if I may. I, I I think COVID has demonstrated that global pandemics 
are just as it just have the potential of existential threat uh, and the ability to to challenge the viability of the nation state as as major conventional conflict could. Yep. Right. So so it's and, and again, some of these things were were known by all countries, but it's one of those issues where the frequency by which we deal these things, we deal with these things may not always be there. Um, so I think there's there's an opportunity globally uh, to to make that recognition. And, and I think human security as an element of security writ large and global health will be a significant issue again, or at least it should be. Um, many who, who study conflict and look at military history, for example, for the vast, vast history of the United States, many of our losses during wars were due to disease, yeah. not necessarily enemy action. Yeah. So, um, so, so there, there's, there's an opportunity there. There's an opportunity, I would argue, too, for existing collective security mechanisms like a NATO, like our, like our other alliance structures, to, to kind of repurpose and remission and vision what we, do, what we do in exporting security and thinking about things in a multilateral sense for COVID. Um, you know, a, a great example for that could be in, uh, in it, it, obviously within Europe, but also in, in other parts of the world where countries like the United States and our historical allies and partners who have the ability to project power and do things with partner nations can, can be proactive um, in doing that. Um, Ebola in 2014 was a very good example. Obviously the magnitude of the outbreak was not what we saw, what we're seeing right now. But you saw a very, very uh, uh, orchestrated effort between the United States, the French, uh, some of our other European allies and partners, but also regional entities like ECOWAS in West Africa to deal with these things in a in a in a tiered sense. Um, I, I I think in the other aspect when when we kind of look at the, this as a nation is. How, how can we embrace the challenge of COVID as an opportunity for genuine reflection as to what, how we understand um, and, and what, what we want in our form of government and also revisiting first principles of things. And to me, this can span everything to an embrace of the idea of civicness and civic duty. Um, as many, many would know, the study and the practice of civics has really kind of been an issue, has been an academic topic that has gone on the wane for a long time. And one of the things that the an appreciation of civics and civic mindedness gives us is it helps us understand not only our rights as citizens, but also our duties. How do we kind of play towards a broader collective good? Um, I think another thing that, that we need to do as a nation and really as a community of nations to think about right now is this idea of what are the principles by which we want the post-COVID order to look like? Um, and, and forgive me for going back to World War II examples again, but even before America was heavily involved in World War II, Roosevelt and Churchill were meeting and trying to typecast out what, is, what does a post-World War order want to look like based on what principles? And, and that was codified in this idea of the Atlantic Charter. So, so thinking about this now, how do we add this to our discourse of what is, what is our charter based on what principles going forward, um, both within the United States and also with, with the community of nations that we, uh, that, that we support? Um, and, and again, I think this is also a great time to, to tie this also back, back into the practice of governance in politics is a revisitation of our founding, the principles of who we are as a country. 
Um, for, for many of those who may be listening with us who have a military background, we know that those in the military and, and others who support and serve for the government, you swear an oath to support and defend the Constitution. And I think right now it's a great opportunity for us to kind of revisit aspects of that Constitution, which begins not with this party or this set of beliefs, but we the people in order to form a more perfect union. Um, so again, a, a great opportunity for us to kind of reflect on what these things mean. Um, and last but not certainly least, universities like Ohio State can be great incubators uh, and great uh, platforms by which to debate these issues, to come up with policy suggestions, to infuse these different ideas together. Because if COVID has taught us anything at all, it is not a, a single policy issue. It's foreign policy and it's domestic politics. It's health policy and it's fiscal policy. It's educational policy and, and, there, and it's policy on things like housing and urban development, um, how we take care of, of, of the homeless. How do we address disenfranchised aspects of our population? And universities, particularly land-grant universities, in the mandate by which they were created after another destructive moment in our history, after the Civil War, can serve as that vehicle and is a major kind of conduit for that uh, conversation. Yeah, that's a great place to end this. A nice exclamation point to uh, the importance of, of this kind of conversation. Um, we're, we're proud to be at a university that is a land-grant institution. So thanks for calling that out. Really appreciate you spending time uh, with us today, sharing uh, your insights and your way of thinking about the world. It's just uh, just a privilege and a pleasure. So thank you. Thank you. And to the listeners, uh, best wishes for your continued help. Policy Brief is produced by the John Glenn College of Public Affairs at The Ohio State University. 